This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Greetings, Gothamites. Welcome to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. I'm Lane, and with me is my guest co-host for this book, Professor Allen. Hello, Professor. Welcome, welcome. Today, we're just, we're covering the first case of the forensic files of Batman. Going into this, I mentioned last time that this is the first book I've read that is A, not a novelization, and B, written by someone who knows the character of Batman pretty intimately. <laughs> and I feel like yeah. that really shines through here. Yes. And uh, this is a monster of a, a first chapter. So I think what we'll do <laughs> for the... Uh, I'll give kind of the synopses and we'll just break in and talk about things that pop up as they happen because there's just there's so much. Um, I think that's going to be the best way to do it. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene one. Case file number 17, year 1, month 3, day 17. From the private files of the Batman. In 1910, the French criminologist Dr. Edmund Lucard observed that every criminal brings something to his crime scene and also takes something away, either inadvertently or by deliberate theft. Some of that which is brought to the crime scene is left behind as trace evidence. Clothing fibers, fallen or pulled hair, shed or scraped flakes of skin, deposited skin oil, grit, powder, fingerprints, bullet casings, a fallen button or discarded cigarette butt, soil from a shoe or simply the shoe's print, saliva or semen, even a bite mark. Excluding obvious valuables or trophies, that which a criminal takes away may include a victim's speck of blood or strand of hair. Lokard further argued that each and every bit of trace evidence offers a clue to its source, if not a direct route to the precise identity of criminal or victim. And Lokard was right. So we have the two little icons. Uh, one was the skull and one was the, like the toe tag, I believe, and that is... <laughs> Those are indications that there is a corpse found and that raw evidence was collected in the field. And yes, both of those things turn up in this mm-hmm, chapter. Mm-hmm. So we start out with a little history lesson about the French criminologist Dr. Edmund Locard and his principle that evidence will be exchanged at a crime scene. And this, the perpetrator will bring something to the scene and take something of the scene away in the form of trace evidence. And I've actually heard of this before. Have you heard of this, Locard's exchange principle? I believe so. Yes. I looked up uh, Dr. Edmund Locard because I, I don't know a lot about him. I've just, I've just kind of heard that principle thrown around. He was known as the Sherlock Holmes of France. 
And I like how there's this guy, Paul Kirk, who's a biochemist and a criminalist who explains the Locard's exchange principle. And there's a nice quote that I wanted to share. He says, wherever he steps, whatever he touches, whatever he leaves, even unconsciously will serve as a silent witness against him. Not only his fingerprints or his footprints, but his hair, the fibers from his clothes, the glass he breaks, the tool marks he leaves, the paint he scratches, the blood or semen he deposits or collects. All of these things and more bear mute witness against him. This is evidence that does not forget. It is not confused by the excitement of the moment. It is not absent because human witnesses are. It is factual evidence. Physical evidence cannot be wrong. It cannot perjure itself. It cannot be wholly absent. Only human failure to find it, study, and understand it can diminish its value. And that just sounds like he's ready to open mm-hmm. up a can of justice. <laughs> <laughs> when I read that, I was like, that's kind of like the perfect tone for this chapter. What I like about that is it talks about the necessary evidence being literally invisible. Mm-hmm. Right, literally invisible to the naked eye. And to some extent, I, this is not the first time, is this is not the last time that I will mention this fellow's name. You already did. But, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes, you know, started this a little around the time of Locard, the late 1800s and into the 1900s. If you think of Sherlock Holmes' iconography, mm-hmm. you've got the hat and the magnifying glass. Yeah. And then, then to me, it's that it, it's that magnifying glass aspect that is speaking to this idea of invisible or nearly invisible data evidence. Right, and even you know, not that long ago, in the grand scheme of things, DNA was still unheard of. So they are still going just by you know, is this blood type an A negative? Is it an O positive? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that was as far as they could go and terms of ruling someone in or out so you kind of got to give props to detectives back in the day what they had to work with was not very much definitely so uh it goes on because this first section is basically almost like the philosophy of forensics such trace evidence is by its nature easily overlooked it must be collected as soon as possible or it is lost forever There is simple genius in this principle, the cornerstone of modern criminal investigation. And that just seemed like a good place for Batman to begin his journey. Yeah. You know, in terms of the evidence, the the skills that he could bring, the knowledge that he could bring, or the techniques that he could bring to crime scenes. And he, I think he talks about like the, how elegant it is in its simplicity. I have to agree with him there because there's so many branches you can go off into and so many little trails you can follow and and so many avenues to explore. But there's like that basic, a a perpetrator's got to bring something to the crime scene and take something away, cut and dry. Mm -hmm. And it's what you do with that principle is where it's kind of the springboard of what comes next. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene two. It began when the keen mind was troubled by vague suspicions. Due to the relatively young ages of the deceased, a string of heart attack deaths hinted at something beyond natural causes. In response, Gotham Police Commissioner James Gordon directed homicide detective Harvey Bullock to review the coroner's report and investigate the backgrounds of the deceased. When Bullock's preliminary findings brought the vague suspicions into sharper focus, 
Gordon decided to seek further assistance at an unlikely place and from an unorthodox source. A rest in peace will actually come really early on today because in this second section, we already have a lot of dialogue, which is a nice change from what I've done in the other books. I thought about saving rest in peace for later, but there was so much dialogue and I'm like, I was having trouble synopsizing the scene. I was like, you know what? We're just going to throw a rest in peace theater in there. Rest in Peace Theater is proud to present That Time Gorin and Batman Speak on Matters of the Heart. Gordon. Uh, there you are. Out of nowhere, with no warning, as usual. Trouble? Feels like, but maybe not. A cop sometimes sees crying even when there's not. A good cop verifies. Which I've done, as far as I can, officially. But not as far as possible. Unofficially. Out of seven deceased, four played on the same high school football team at the same time. Making them the same age at the time of death. Just 28. Far too young to die. Any other connections? Just that all four lived and died in Gotham. And the other three served on the same board of directors for Gotham University. And these three were presumably older? Forties and fifties. Making their heart attacks somewhat less suspicious. But with no history of heart problems. Still too young to die. Murder. Wish I knew. It's my job to find out. Time frame? Roughly five weeks from first death to seventh. Did the high school football players attend Gotham University? None of the four. And no other links between them and the university regents? All were male and all resided in the Gotham area. That's it, at least on the surface. Time to dig deeper. Detective Bullock's report, along with the death certificates. No full autopsies? Just routine toxicology. Different doctor in each case. Each facing an unusually young heart attack. But all of them unaware of the other deaths. So they all signed off on natural causes. They may have paused a bit, but in the end, there was no real reason to suspect anything else. People do drop dead, occasionally even young people. The only truly suspicious element is the number of deaths and their concentration in time and place. Plus, they were all heart failures. If they were also murders, they may share the same modus operandi. If we're right to suspect the worst, I bet it's definitely the same M.O., but damned if I know what it could be. The most recent death? Three days ago. Scratch that. Three nights ago. Either way, sifting the scenes at this point might not turn up much. Probably not, but I could find some pretext to have each of the premises vacated for an hour or two. Arrange a look. Given enough notice, that is. I'll look into it. Let you know. <laughs> I was taken aback by Batman thinking people drop dead in their 40s and 50s so easily from heart attacks. I guess he's planning to hold them upside down by their ankles, and, and, and maybe in his line of work, that's going to happen more often. Yeah, yeah, that could be. That could be. 
because <laughs> I, I was reading this, so I'm like, hey, if I see people dropping dead of heart attacks in their 40s and 50s, I would also, I would still think that's too young, but it might be because I'm biased. I'm in my 40s, so. <laughs> <laughs> just a kid. <laughs> I get just a kid yet. <laughs> in in this segment, we got a bat signal. We got a bat signal. Yes, sort of a makeshift, unofficial, if I remember. Or there were a couple of those in here in a couple different places. Yeah, but I love the first appearance of the bat signal. And I love. Let's see where it was it was the image of the bat rising from the main signal rather than the smaller portable one. I've never even mm-hmm. considered okay. a smaller portable one, but it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I haven't come in a, come across it yet in you know the readings I've done a little bit. Here no, no. Mm-mm. Like right at the beginning, he talks about a keen mind, and he's referring to Gordon with this. And coming from Batman, I think that's mm-hmm. some high praise indeed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had to laugh a little bit. I was just south of the wharves, two hours into a disappointing night of nothing but a single inept mugger. <laughs> like Batman, people are not getting killed tonight. That should be a good thing. <laughs> Oh, poor Batman. Are we bored? He's a little bored. <laughs> he forgot to charge up his phone so he could listen to podcasts. <laughs> I wanted to play some Angry Birds while I'm sitting here waiting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. There's some really nice imagery in this scene, and it's like from the first that we've really come across. And it was even about the bat signal. I saw the shaft of strong light slash the darkness stabbing diagonally upward to project a distorted emblem on the low scudding clouds. I was like, ooh, yes, good imagery. I would imagine that a comic book writer getting a chance to do prose, mm-hmm. it, it it lets them stretch their wings in such a different way. Right. I mean, the one of the real struggles with comic book writing is those dialogue balloons do not give you much space. I don't remember what the rule is, but it's something like, you know, no more than 25 words in a balloon and no more than X number of balloons on a page. I mean, they're just, there are not many words in a comic book. Yeah. And they can't really describe anything that, that is Mm -hmm. left up to the artists. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, which it it works well in that medium, but Mm -hmm. when we're working without pictures, then the the writers get a chance to kind of paint that in our minds for us. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, of the Batman books I've read so far, um, this is number four. This is by Mm -hmm. far, I think, my favorite Gordon Batman on the rooftop scene. Mm -hmm. It just, it was such a great interaction. There were, I mean, there were other good ones, of course, but this one just feels so grounded in forensics. And yes. we got that a little bit with Vax, but with, you know, Vax came into it not really knowing the characters as well as Minch does. Mm-hmm. So I think this so far is just like a perfect blend of good writing and in-depth knowledge, while not also being under the time crunch of it being a novelization. Right. Once, like, I was already interested when we, we picked up the introduction last time we recorded, but mm-hmm. I really started geeking out over this uh, with this chapter. Definitely. And I've, I've read enough mysteries and, you know, police procedurals or like I think of the Case Scarpetta novels by Patricia Cornwell, mm-hmm. which feature a you know, medical examiner as a character. Right. So you sort of get, you know, that side of evidence and what those invisible bits of evidence can tell you. Mm-hmm. 
And we like we'll get more into it farther in the novel, but it's not only getting these bits of microscopic evidence, it's also having to connect one to the other. You have to do some mental gymnastics to really figure out how this piece of the puzzle fits with this piece of the puzzle. And it, it just it happens nicely throughout. There was another part that kind of made me grin a little bit when, when he's talking with Gordon. It's a bit of narrative. It says, The wind stiffened, stirring my cloak. It billowed to the side, then snapped behind me. And I'm like, Batman's just there thinking, like, man, I look cool. And, and it was awesome. <laughs> I just had to chuckle at that. Thankfully, we don't get that, like, throughout the rest where he's just like, I strode with my cape billowing behind me. <laughs> this was just kind of like a one-time. <laughs> it's always tricky when you're dealing with first-person point of view. He's thinking, and I jumped off that gargoyle just as the lightning struck. <laughs> oh, it was epic. <laughs> I'm so damn cool. Yes. <laughs> Where is Frank Miller to draw this? <laughs> and then finally, I noticed that this time Batman waited until Gordon was gone. I was wholly expecting mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gordon to turn his back and then, you know, Batman's gone. But it, it didn't work out that way. I was surprised. All right. Ready to move on to the next section? Yes. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene three. At the workstation in the cave. With Alfred's prepared sandwich untouched and shoved to the side, I read Bullock's brief report and compared the seven death certifications. As Gordon had warned, they were the simple standard forms used for death by natural causes. Several of the physicians were evidently puzzled and somewhat troubled, going out of their way to append notations of medical history. No heart defects, no prior indications of coronary thrombosis or occlusion, Cholesterol levels within acceptable range. The doctors were claiming cardiac arrest, while seeing no reason for heart's disease. Toxicology results were all essentially negative. Slightly elevated blood alcohol in two of the seven, but nothing beyond a few beers or glasses of wine. No drugs or any other foreign substance. At least none of those routinely detected. Rare or elusive poisons remained a possibility. So back at the Batcave... Batman pours over Bullock's report while his sandwich goes uneaten. As Gordon said... <laughs> no respect, Alfred. There's no respect. No respect whatsoever. As Gordon said, there is nothing unusual in the files to point toward heart failure at such a young age. The toxicology report shows nothing aside from some slightly elevated blood alcohol, but the levels are consistent with just a few beers or glasses of wine. However, there remains the possibility of rare or elusive poisons that would not be detected in a standard toxicology. In five of the seven victims, it was noted that their faces showed abrupt shock. Not unusual when the onset of chest pain is both acute and sudden, but still. Batman stares off into the cave, pondering the information, or lack thereof, in these reports. He listens to the rustling of unseen bats and wonders. What did those dead faces actually express? Was it simply pain, or was there some fear as well? Were the victims somehow scared to death? And this was when I was like, oh, this is a scarecrow. This is a scarecrow file. <laughs> exactly. Yes. He is one of my favorite Batman villains. Oh, then this was perfect for you. Uh-huh. The great way to start this. Mm-hmm. 
and we get for not not for the first time. I do think it's probably you know setting scenes for later when we're specifically talking about the caves and the bats and the stalactites and the stalagmites. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of layering in some of those elements that will that will return, right? Be be referenced later. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene four. I harvested the first scene that night, with no need to alert Gordon. It was the apartment where a former football player had lived and died alone, not yet subleased. Next of kin had been contacted, but had not yet come, which meant the man's apartment remained uncleaned, his furniture and belongings still in situ. Of all seven death scenes, this one was therefore the least contaminated and would hold the most evidence. Sliding the sprung window high, I immediately reached for the nose rebreather in my belt. The body had been found near the coffee table between couch and television, but only after several days, and the smell of death lingered thickly. With the breathing filter in place, I gently punched out the screen and slipped through the window. Okay, so the next one... I think this is one of the long ones. Yeah, this one's pretty long. So, like, if you if there's something you want to touch on mm-hmm. um, as I'm re- as I'm synopsizing, feel free to pop in. That night, Batman goes to the apartment where one of the victims lived and died alone. Next of kin have been contacted but not yet arrived, meaning the apartment remains largely untouched since the victim's death. Of all seven death scenes, this one potentially holds the most evidence. Because the corpse laid undiscovered for several days, Batman is forced to use a rebreather to deal with the thick scent of death. He makes his way slowly through the apartment, touching nothing, using only a halogen pinlight for illumination. As he nears the place where the body was found, near the coffee table, Batman gets on hands and knees, holding his pinlight in his teeth, and begins to collect the smallest bits of visible evidence. Dust, lint, fuzz crumbs, tiny bits of glittering grit, a small fragment of what appeared to be dried plant stem, and many dead flies. Each item is sealed in its own evidence bag, marked with coordinates. Batman cleaning services! (laughs) And uh, just with my cats, if he had to do that in my house, I think he'd just hang up the cowl (laughs) right away. He's like, screw this, this is too much. (laughs) So, with the bagging of the small grits done, he switches to the high-powered hand vacuum to collect trace evidence for the next 30 minutes. Once that's done, he's able to move about more freely. He removes everything from the coffee table. Magazines, ashes, butts, more dead flies, a beer can, similarly bagging each item. He uses a magnifying lens and tweezers to collect hair from the couch along with any fibers that appear foreign. So definitely looking at the detective side of Batman, which I love. His search moves outward, combing the rest of the apartment. He finds little of interest, but bags a few items anyway. He is almost certain they are irrelevant, but he wishes to overlook nothing. Because the victims died of heart attacks, Batman does not expect to find blood. If there had been a struggle, it was slight, as the bodies bear no wounds. But still, there is a remote chance to find blood either the victims or the perpetrator, if indeed a perpetrator even exists. Batman sprays luminol and uses a separate ultraviolet light. He finds nothing. Finally, Batman dusts every likely surface in the apartment for fingerprints. 
This task alone takes two hours. As usual, the dust reveals mostly worthless smudges. The few good ones, as usual, are only partials. He lifts the print with cellophane tape and transfers them to cardstock. And then I'm going to read the uh, the final paragraph. Then I gathered the meager harvest, killed my small light, and left. Closing the sprung window behind me, I bagged the contaminated rebreather. The cool air was a relief from the lingering aura of death. Breathing deeply, I unhitched my line from the fire escape rail and swung off through the night, feeling alive and quickened. No wounds, no bruises, no blood. Even the luminol revealed nothing, so. Mm-hmm. Mm. Not much to work with. Mm-hmm. But he was extremely thorough, making sure to get everything that he could. I was really kind of impressed with, you know, there's not much action going on here, which is so <laughs> far what I get a lot of. But we hear, like, oh, he's the world's greatest detective, but this stuff like this is what I love, and it's what we get so rarely, it feels like. Yeah, there was not a lot of a punching of the carpet to get <laughs> it to talk. Right. <laughs> what is going on here? Nope, nope, nope. He tweezed that fiber within an inch of its life. <laughs> and then I like a couple of writing, just sort of writing technique, narrative mm-hmm. uh, s- uh, sort of things here. One, I'm going to stop pointing out things that come back later. But there are things in here again that come back. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll point them out then. <laughs> right. I, I have at least one thing that will pop back as well. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene five. After notifying Gordon the next day, I visited the other six vacated scenes early that night and the next. With every scene long since cleaned, contaminated or both, the pickings were even slimmer. I took what little I found. And uh, But then also we get this waste well, about two and a half pages of you know, detailed going over this uh, this scene, and then right after it, we get one teeny tiny paragraph saying, "And I did the same thing at the other eight crime scenes." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I like that. So you get you get both the time, uh, you know, the really focusing in and you know going step by step, detail by detail, mm-hmm. but then also knowing. But if I do this for eight more times, the same exact thing, that's not going to be compelling writing. Right. It, it's, it's a really good balance because I think mm-hmm. teasing this out over well, two and a half pages, I think it was, kind of shows just like the slightest touch of Batman also doing this slow pouring over. I mean, he spends mm-hmm. two hours alone just mm-hmm. looking for fingerprints. And as skilled of a fighter as he is, he's also really skilled with being patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, every contact leaves a trace. Scene six. Alfred attended me in the cave's well-lit workstation area, arraying the bagged samples across the large lab bench. He organized them into seven groups, one for each death scene. No luck with the prints, sir. Finished at the computer. I crossed toward the lab bench. None. Every identifiable fingerprint was either matched to the deceased or remained unknown, with no matched prints common to two or more scenes. Many or all of the unknowns were no doubt innocent, left by family members or visitors whose prints were not on file. If murder had been committed, and if the killer had been careless enough to leave a print or prints at one, but not two or more, of the scenes... That killer had never been arrested by any law enforcement organization sharing its fingerprint files with any databank. 
local, or international. Nor did the cave's mainframe database match the prints to anyone ever fingerprinted for any reason. In the next scene, later in the Batcave, Bruce and Alfred begin to go over the evidence. Fingerprints. Every identifiable print was either matched to the deceased or remained unknown, with no matched prints common to two or more scenes, leaving Batman to feel sure the unknown prints are innocent, likely left by family or visitors. And if the killer had been careless enough to leave a print, he only did it at one crime scene, not more than one, and his prints are not on record. A little bit of forensic jargon here. We learn about Mm -hmm. Q samples and K samples. Q samples are potentially criminal evidence they're questioned or q samples because their source is unknown and k samples are known samples which are reference samples that are fully identified alfred correctly states that they're going to be working with mostly q samples with this because that's when you think about fingerprint matching either on you know uh, tv crime shows or something it is always that k sample the comparing against a known database Mm-hmm. to identify the person. So what I liked about this, in addition in addition to that, they're running the samples against each other. Right. To look for commonalities as well. Yeah. And they mention, and in this, I was really kind of impressed with this because in uh, a lot of these like law and order type shows, they'll say, oh, this evidence isn't enough because it's circumstantial. There's a lawyer on YouTube that I'd like to watch. His name, he goes by uh, Legal Eagle. And he kind of addresses this. He says, most evidence that you'll ever get will be circumstantial. And the point is, like, you have to have enough of it. And Batman talks about that here. Uh, Because the evidence is circumstantial, the number and degree of links required for conviction can vary from one jury to another. The critical threshold always being reasonable doubt. Yeah, this reminded me, I teach a class in our accounting program uh, about auditing. Uh-huh. And the auditing process, there are lots of references and comparisons and sort of judicial, uh, you know, courtroom sort of lingo. And, you know, part of it is about gathering evidence and the way we phrase it, it takes both a quantitative and qualitative components. You have to get enough good evidence. Mm-hmm. If you have really great evidence, you don't need as much of it. Right. If your evidence on an individual basis isn't as strong, then the sheer volume of it mm-hmm. may, be, may be enough. So it's that quantitative and qualitative balance that you're looking for that Batman mentions here, discusses here. Yeah. I kind of wish I knew what kind of homework Doug Minch did in, in doing this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So continuing on this, so they, they move from the fingerprints next to the fibers and they perform a side-by-side microscopic comparison of the fibers, a technique known in forensics as a speeding bullet, a term Bruce dislikes for obvious reasons. Under the microscope, the three fibers appear shaggy to the same extravagant degree. They seem to match. Bruce manipulates the fibers with tweezers to get a view of the cross-section, and again, they match. They are all three irregular or wrinkly in the cross-section. So next comes the infrared spectrometer. We got the slow detail of him gathering the evidence. Now we're getting some slow detail of him mm-hmm. looking at it. And Alfred is there helping him, like literally passing tools to him, almost like a surgeon. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm curious about that one comment about, you know, I don't, don't like using the phrase, you know, speeding bullet or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And that would be 
an, uh, a potentially interesting research project. If there was only someone I knew who was involved in – wait a minute. That's me. Oh, um <laughs> Because we do use gun expressions mm-hmm. and analogies, just uh, smoking gun, right? Son of a gun. You know, we I think of a half dozen others. Hair trigger, right, exactly. And I, and and I'm, I'm wondering, does Batman ever use those? Ooh. He's been published for eighty years. Ah. Like how? I mean, does does he ever? Again, these are common phrases. Mm-hmm. How often has he just in casual conversation used language like that? Despite this protestation that he doesn't right. or doesn't like it. I will keep my eyes open as I go through my uh, reading through DC Comics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the infrared reveals further commonalities. The three fibers are indeed a match and were found at three of the death scenes at minimum, possibly all seven. So this is uh, finally something that connects all of the scenes together, or at least more than one. So while Bruce and Alfred don't yet know the source of the fibers, they are able to find the material, sackcloth, an unusual type of sackcloth at that. They are puzzled. If the fibers had fallen from some sort of burglar's bag, why were all the deaths routinely judged natural, with no indications of forced entry or any other kind of intrusion? Why were no valuables reported missing? If there was some other explanation for the presence of sackcloth in the immediate vicinities of at least three suspicious deaths, Batman can't imagine what the explanation might be. Thankfully, Alfred loves a good mystery, and they spend the rest of the day examining the collected evidence. I love that bit. As you well know, sir, I do love a mystery. (laughs) I love Alfred. (laughs) He gets so sassy. I like I like this. We're at the stage now. We're we're getting some connections. We're seeing where some of this evidence uh, might be leading. Mm-hmm. And I love those details. Yeah, and one detail that I highlighted, which is coming up next, is Batman notices that the dead flies he collects at the scene are small. They seem small mm-hmm. and young, and it nags at him, and he doesn't yet know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. So Alfred makes them some food. And they eat in silence. This time, Bruce is eating. Sandwich is probably still sitting there, getting moldy. No, <laughs> Alfred would never let that happen. He would... No. No. So they, they eat in silence. They're both pondering the mystery of the sackcloth. And the butler checks the time, noting that it is approaching nightfall. Mm-hmm. And darkness, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that Alfred, it's just... And darkness, I know. I mean, is that like his real voice, maybe? And he... <laughs> oh, thanks, Alfred. I appreciate it. Then he has to, like, dial it down to Batman mode. <laughs> he sounds like one of the Three Stooges in regular times. They set aside some evidence that can probably be disposed, but it won't officially be thrown out until the case is closed. Until then, it is stored in some drawers mm-hmm. set into the cavern's rock wall. Temperature control down there too. Oh, good thinking. Yeah, good for good for storage. It might be a little wet and dank, and you might get some bat guano on there. But technicalities. Yeah, at technicalities, least, Lane. At least the temperature is pretty pretty even. So for right now, there is nothing more that Batman can do aside from visiting the high school where some of the victims played football, and the university where some of the administrators worked. Where I'm sorry, where all of the administrators worked. Including driving time, both will consume no more than an hour of darkness. And yet Gotham is a large city. 
its predators many and always active. The late autumn's long night would hold no shortage of work. Bruce dons his cape and cowl and leaves the cave dressed for the night and its shadows. A nice little end to the scene there. Yes. I thought it was funny that he retrieved his cape and cowl while Alfred retrieved it for him, draped over its usual chair. Excuse me? Hmm. Wait, wait. <laughs> I mean, I throw my hoodies over a chair. I was expecting him to keep his stuff in like one of those fancy schmancy telephone booth chambers <laughs> that he uses. I imagine he's wearing most of his costume. It's just like the cape and cowl that he's kind of set right. aside. But I still kind of got a little chuckle over that. <laughs> yeah, that does stand out. I mean, you would think that uh, Alfred would have it on a nice wooden hanger. Uh-huh. And it's over its usual chair, so it happens a lot. It would have a nice cedar scent to it. Uh-huh. He'd be lint brushing it. Right, exactly. I mean, this is, this is, this is, oh, Alfred, falling down on the oh, job, my man. goodness. Alfred, Alfred, <laughs> Alfred. <laughs> Every contact leaves a trace. Scene 6. The most intriguing name was Dr. Jonathan Crane, a professor of psychology at Gotham University who'd been hired just a few years prior. Crane had attended the same high school at the same time as the four dead football players, and had now been employed for several years at the same university governed by the three dead regents. I found little in the computer about Crane and no criminal record. This proved only that he had never been arrested, however, not necessarily that he was innocent. And it fit with the computer's lack of prints matching those lifted from the scenes. Every killer starts somewhere, and something may have recently triggered Crane. Then again, the killer might be someone else entirely, either a known criminal wearing gloves, or someone else not yet arrested and never printed, someone utterly unknown who might as well be a ghost. Both alive and identified, Professor Crane was my only lead and best bet. Should he prove innocent, he need never know he'd been suspected of anything. The following scene, Batman wakes, or sorry, Bruce, wakes up the next day and heads straight for the Batcave, telling Alfred he would take breakfast there. He has no doubt now that Gordon's intuition was right. These cases involve murder. He has no doubt, but he still lacks proof. Although the means of murder will prove important, Bruce strongly senses that motive will prove to be the key, and motive might be revealed through greater understanding of the victims. We're getting into victimology now. Mm-hmm. Well, the key, aren't the, the key bits of solving a crime? Is it means, motive, and opportunity? Opportunity, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Bruce muses that when a Killer selects a victim solely on physical type. Young white women, for example, slim with long hair, a la Ted Bundy is who I thought of. The victims can be complete strangers chosen at random. This is why serial killers can be hard to identify. A multiple murderer, however, is motivated by personal passion, personal gain, or personal revenge. Victims of this latter type, all family members or all co-workers, share a commonality that's not physical appearance. In the case of the sackcloth killings, there are two different groups of victims, former football players and current university regents. The crimes suggest a multiple murderer then, not a serial killer. With this in mind, 
Bruce looks through the victim's records with a fresh perspective to find a stronger link between the victims. Several names turn up, each a suspect to be checked. I think that was, like you said, pretty straightforward criminology, victimology work. But again, I like I like us going through the thought processes. Right. I, I've not heard multiple murderer. I, I, I wonder if that's different mm-hmm. from mass murderer. I think mass murderer, maybe mm-hmm. like all at one time, but... It could be, yeah. yeah. It, it makes sense to me, though. It It's laid out really clearly. Like, yeah, even though I've never heard mm-hmm. of multiple murderer versus like a, a mass killer or serial killer, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The name that, catch, that most catches Bruce's attention is a Dr. Jonathan Crane, professor of psychology at Gotham University, who was hired a few years prior. Crane attended the same high school as the four dead football players. He works at the same university, governed by the three dead regents. Other than that, there is little information about Crane. He has no criminal record, but that only proves he has never been arrested, not that he is innocent. This theory also aligns with the computer's inability to match prints found at the crime scene to law enforcement databases. The killer could also be a known criminal wearing gloves or totally someone unknown. Both alive and identified, Professor Crane is Batman's only lead and best bet. Should he prove innocent, he'd need never know he'd been suspected of anything. So a little stealth investigating gonna happen. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene 7 After paving the way through Gordon via Detective Harvey Bullock's discreet but official visit to campus security, I penetrated Crane's university office shortly after midnight. His bookshelves held a mix of titles, primarily texts on psychology, with an extensive subcategory on the nature and examination of phobias and fear in general. Isolated in their own smaller section were a number of chemistry reference works. Crane's desk drawers were locked. After picking them open, I found one side drawer filled with an eccentric jumble of small human skulls, the kind of plastic gimcrack novelty sold in dime stores and gumball machines. There were dozens of them, several with keychain eyelets, and several that glowed when I switched off the light. In the bottom right drawer, under a pile of ungraded papers, there was a well-thumbed vintage edition of Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the only work of fiction in the office. At the time, it meant little. You know, there have been times when I've walked into my office on campus, (laughs) and I just have the feeling, I look up at my bookcase with all the Doctor Doom action figures sitting there majestically, and one of them looks maybe just tilted a few degrees one way or the other, (laughs) even worse ones but knocked down. Now I know. And it looks like your carpet's been vacuumed for <gasps> two hours with a handheld high-powered vacuum cleaner. Because believe me, I've been in this office 15 years. <laughs> that, that carpet's never been vacuumed. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm just making a comment. Mm-hmm. See? I would suspect Batman. Uh, it was totally Batman. Totally Batman. <laughs> Nothing else makes sense. This is genius. <laughs> To help Batman gain entrance to Gotham University, Gordon sends Harvey Bullock. And I'm curious if if Harvey Bullock is in on this. I don't think he is. I don't think he knows that he's being used as a pawn to help Batman. Mm -hmm. But I think Gordon is just kind of saying, go, hey, do this for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So Harvey Bullock goes to the campus to meet with a security team. With the guards otherwise occupied, Batman has no trouble getting into Crane's office, or your office, shortly, no! <laughs> shortly after midnight. The professor's bookshelves hold books on psychology, especially phobias and fear. In addition, there are a few chemistry reference books. Batman picks the locked desk drawers. One drawer is filled with dozens of small plastic human skulls, the kind sold in dime stores and gumball machine, as if Batman has ever been a dollar store or a dime store. Pshaw. <laughs> he would not deign to shop at Family Dollar. <laughs> Some are keychains that glow, and in the bottom right drawer under a pile of ungraded papers is a well-thumbed vintage edition of Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the only work of fiction in the office, which Batman doesn't think is significant at the time. The file cabinet holds correspondence, academic newsletters, and journals covering psychology and chemistry, and drafts of articles written by Crane and copies of Crane's course lectures. The professor's course notes have titles such as The Psychology of Fear, The Mind-Body Connection and Autonomous Fear Response, and Triggers of Terror. The articles have titles like the sum of every fear assailing the flailed psyche, which there's a visual right there. <laughs> fear is everything, bulging eye and beating heart, and panica plus. <laughs> Psychology professors. Am I right? <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> and at first, I didn't catch. I'm like, what is panica? And I looked up, and it was like some Hindu something or other. I'm like, no. Oh, it's, it's like the Greek panica. Which, mm. do you know the etymology of the word panic? I do not. It's from the Greek panicon, literally pertaining to Pan, the god of woods and fields, who oh. was the source of mysterious sounds that cause contagious, groundless fear in herds and crowds, or in people in lonely spots. Mm. And I actually had a Greek friend, um, oh man, years ago, this is back in the day of like ICQ, this is way back <laughs> 2000 mm. uh we were correspondents and we're actually still friends to this day he told me that the origin of the word panic is from fear of you know the god pan making noises mm -hmm. out in the, on the woods well there is a you know connection there that i can see in terms of having read enough fantasy novels and fairy tales and things that the the fey realm is pretty scary yeah it's not historically fun and Tinkerbell and light, it's, it is dark and mm -hmm. scary. And so that idea of pan and fear, I can see that. I buy that. Definitely. There's a creature that I don't hear about very often called a stray sod. And I think it's either Irish or it's some kind of Celtic mm -hmm. folklore, mm -hmm. I believe. It's been a long time since I've read the book that this was in. But basically, it's a little creature that kind of hunches down it kind of has uh grasses and leaves growing out of its back or in its clothing as as disguise if you accidentally step on it you'll suddenly not know where you are even if it's a path you've walked on your entire life you'll suddenly be lost mm. and that's something that's so subtle but cool. so terrifying at the same time mm-hmm 
But anyway, just little little random bits of uh, folklore there. I mean, that's uh, it's it's stories like that. I mean, that's why Swamp Thing uh-huh. and related you know, related types of characters still you know hang around decades and decades and decades in comic books. Yeah, there there there, there is something about that. Yeah. So Batman moves across campus, this time breaking into the university's administration offices. Okay, finally something I can agree with. (laughs) So here, he gets Crane's academic transcripts and employment records. Batman uses the office copy machine to make duplicates, as well as copies of Crane's course lectures. Now, here I was thinking, surely the building where the faculty offices are surely there was a, a Xerox machine in there as well, mm. because he makes he makes his copies, but now he has to go all the way back across campus to return these items back to Crane's office. Now I'm not asking you, Lane, for what your copy code is at work, <laughs> but there is one, right? I mean, when I start up the copy machine at on on campus, there's a fours or six digits or something I have to type in there, and it charges it to my department. It's coming. It isn't on our campus yet. Okay. Uh, I can still go to the copy machines and make making copies. All right. I remind me to email you all the stuff I need to have copied. Thanks so much. No I, really, I, I appreciate that. That is so kind of you. Absolutely. And I guess here in 2004, maybe that wasn't quite as common. Yeah. So I'll, 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 I'll give our friend uh, uh, Doug Mench a pass on that one. Right. Because even the the codes that we have to type in or we'll have to type in at our work, even that that's pretty new. Mm, okay. So, I just I, I think Batman could have done this more efficiently, made copies there in the faculty office building, and then made copies at the administration building. But now you think know. about it, he he you know, he he probably does this a lot, and if you think about it, I mean, there's no one that he can ask for help. Right. So he he. he he is going to have to change out that toner himself, yeah. <laughs> which is why he wears black. Yes, we figured it out. It all yes. comes back. It finally all makes sense. Hamlet's not the only one who wears an inky cloak. Oh. <laughs> Leaving a little Shakespeare in there. So let's see, where were we? Okay, so Batman goes back to Crane's office, returns all the stuff, and he is sitting at Crane's desk and he notices a stuffed crow mounted on the opposite wall. And when he sits at the desk, the crow seems to be staring right at him. It's okay. I have things in my office, too. It's fine. So by dawn, Batman is back in the cave. Rather than sleep, because sleep is for the sleepy, he goes over the copies of documents he has collected from the university. He learns that Crane double majored in psychology and chemistry, and while employed at Gotham U, he is granted use of a small chemistry lab to pursue experiments in his quote-unquote first love. Batman wishes the standard toxicology tests run on the victims had been more thorough. Because the more he's learning about Crane, the more, su- the more suspicious he's getting. Mm-hmm. Finished with the papers, Batman retrieves a device called the Snifter a vapor detector more formally known as the Portable JW Aromatic Hydrocarbon Indicator, a prototype tweaked and enhanced by his best people at Wayne Tech Corporation. And by best people, he means Lucius Lucius Fox. Fox. Of course. Everyone needs a Lucius in their back pocket. I wonder what he could do with my Prius C. Oh, I bet he could trick that out. 
Bruce wraps the device in protective padding and secures it in the Batmobile's trunk for later use. And again, the, the the idea of Batman using the copy machine, like, yeah, changing the toner. Like, what if there's a jam? Because copy machines jam constantly. Does he have to get down there and, like, find out which drawer he has to open? And <laughs> <laughs> Then, like, if he opens the drawers, does his cape get caught in all the gears? I mean, it's just a mess. There's a lot going on with this story. I like the way you think. So much going on. That's what <laughs> there's so much in this, and I love it. And I'm actually kind of surprised because you said that this one seems to be by far the, the longest section. I'm kind of surprised that they put that up front, which mm-hmm. makes me wonder: Does Crane maybe come back later in the book? Or right? Yeah, yeah. I I, I haven't looked ahead to have any idea what the structure yeah. of this is. I just know it's a mix. It looks like a mix of long and short, mm-hmm. and a and a mix of narrative and much more. You know, straight. Facts of deduction like we've been talking about. Nice. So by the time Bruce Bruce finally climbs the stairs to Wayne Manor, he is nearly certain that he's found a predator, if not yet the proof required to stop him. Crane is obviously obsessed with fear and its effect on the mind and body. From the beginning, faced with seven fatal heart attacks, Bruce had wondered if seven grown men could be literally scared to death. Now he would have bet Bruce Wayne's bed and all of its nightmares— that they had. Poor Bruce. Therapy, buddy. Therapy. (laughs) (laughs) He's got nightmares. It just makes me sad. There's this lady therapist, Dr. Quinzel. Yes. I hear, I hear good things. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I hear really good things. I think he should give her a try. (laughs) I've heard she's worked with tough cases before. Picking up what I'm putting down. I picked up what you put down. We're on the same page, which happens to be page 42 for anyone reading along. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene 8. Crouched in the shadow of a large air duct on the cafeteria rooftop, opposite the university psychology wing, I wondered if the professor often worked so late after hours. When the light in his office window finally darkened an hour before midnight... I took the mini binoculars from my belt and trained them on the doorway. And when the man himself emerged into the night, my mind instantly leaped to the book in his bottom drawer. Extremely tall and stick-thin, little more than a skin-belled skeleton lost in ill-fitting clothes, Jonathan Crane was the gawky and bespectacled spitting image of Washington Irving's Ichabod Crane. The identical last name and similar physique combined with the presence of the book transcended coincidence. For obvious reasons, real-life Jonathan identified with fictional Ichabod, at least up to a point. Later, Batman crouches in the shadow of a large air duct on the cafeteria rooftop at Gotham University, opposite the psychology wing. Even though it is well after hours, Crane is still in his office, working. Finally, an hour before midnight, the office lights turn off. Batman uses his mini binoculars and watches the doorway to the building, waiting for Crane to emerge. When Batman sees Crane for the first time, his mind instantly leaps to the book in Crane's bottom drawer, the only work of fiction, the one he had dismissed. Jonathan Crane is extremely tall and stick-thin, little more than a skin-bound skeleton lost in ill-fitting clothes, the spitting image of Ichabod Crane. The identical last name... Similar physique, the book in the drawer, all transcend coincidence. 
Where Ichabod and Jonathan differ, however, is in their mannerisms. Ichabod was meek and frightened. The professor walks in a confident, jaunty manner, even clicking his heels. Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, who does that? You see it in movies and TV. I've, I've never seen it. Someone like just jump up and click their heels together. Have you? Two words, Lane. Faculty meeting. <laughs> when they're over, people click their heels and leave. <laughs> My dad used to have a goat, which must run in the family because now I have I have two goats. Uh, wait but a he minute. had a goat when uh, I was basically a baby or toddler, and he s- said that it would would like to climb the picnic table because goats love to climb. And it would jump off the the picnic table, and in mid mid air, as it leapt off the picnic table, it would clack its heels together like its hooves, and it would have a little audible clack every time, which I think is amazing. My goats haven't done that yet, but given their personalities, I can believe that his did. Now I don't I I don't know your dad obviously, but I assume he described that as adorbs. Uh, adorbs, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's no other way, really, to describe it. So Batman drops from the roof and follows Crane to the apartment building near the campus. Crane goes inside and turns on a light, letting Batman know which apartment is his and which apartment to search the following night. He's got his, he's got his week planned out for him. <laughs> well, I love that line in there about... How could this freakishly frail and bookishly unassuming specimen induce fatal heart attacks in his victims? Mm-hmm. How indeed. Again, it's that it's that uh, extended prose that you don't get in a standard comic book. Right. Batman doesn't get to go to Crane's apartment the next night, however. He is summoned to a crime scene by the smaller portable bat signal. Gordon waits in the shadows... I'm I'm curious now, though. Does that portable one, is it powered by the cigarette lighter in the car? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Hmm. I mean, now now it would be their iPhone. Sorry, their Wayne phone. It would be their Wayne phone. (laughs) The bat phone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, either that or maybe it'd have like a a JPEG, not a JPEG, what's it called? A USB. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Exactly. And then sometimes, like if Gordon is driving an older car and it doesn't have a USB, he has to get the USB to cigarette lighter converter. (laughs) (laughs) He goes to the crime scene. Uh, Gordon is waiting in the shadows half a block away from the yellow crime scene tape. So I'm guessing he doesn't want the other members of the GCPD to know that he summoned Batman. So, well, I don't know. They must know. If he used the bat signal, they probably know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So the victim is another football jock from Crane's high school who has lain undiscovered next to his bed for at least 48 hours. Gordon had requested area hospitals to report any heart attack fatality under 45, so he managed to secure the scene almost immediately after the victim was discovered. Gordon says he will hold the GCPD back for an hour, giving Batman some time to work alone. Batman retrieves the snifter from the trunk of the Batmobile and heads toward the back entrance of the apartment building. Inside the apartment near the victim's bed are dozens of dead flies and some now familiar sackcloth fibers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Curiouser and curiouser. Batman bags only one of each. There are also some dried plant stems, 
also previously seen at a crime scene. He takes one. Two days have passed since the victim's death, and Batman isn't expecting the snifter to pick up anything much, but the device picks up trace amounts of a lingering vapor, detected and captured, but not identified in the databank. The unknown or new vapor was perhaps manufactured at the Gotham University Chemistry Lab. Feeling unsettled, Batman finishes up at the scene and departs. And I saw, I don't know if it's a typo, it says, like, the last line is, feeling strange unsettled. I left with my finds. Yeah, and I noticed that, too. It would be strangely unsettled, I would assume. Yeah, so I didn't know if strange unsettled was some weird little phrase mm-hmm. I've never heard before. But I'm guessing the uh, Doug Mensch said, I'm feeling strange. No, no, no. Feeling unsettled. But he just uh, <laughs> forgot to erase that first one there. Well, you know, if if you you know if if you reach out to Mench and make contact, to me, this is the first question you ask. Yeah, exactly. Did you know on page forty four, Mister Mench, that you made a glaring error? <laughs> that that'll win him over. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene ten. Back in the cave, Alfred helped me use stationary and mobile phase chromatography and electrophoresis to separate the trace vapors' constituent compounds. Even though this secret account is intended for few future eyes, the compounds here will remain unidentified by name. So, back in the cave, Alfred helps Batman use the stationary and mobile phase tools. He uses tools to separate... Phase chromatography. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) There we go. Just gotta say I'm fast and with authority... And students will believe it. I mean, podcast listeners will believe it. There we go. So we have a lot of dialogue here and a lot a lot going on. So this is also the scene, like, rather than try to condense all this into a synopsis, we're just going to do, like, a little, little back and forth reading of what's going on. Are you ready? And this is when my perfect British accent gets to shine. Oh, my lands. That is going to... I am... I am. <laughs> I am anxiously awaiting. Thankfully, my husband isn't here to hear it. You know, he he seems kind of (laughs) judgy. So this, this conversation will be between Alfred and Bruce. Nothing toxic and nothing known to induce heart attack. Nothing individually toxic. Indeed, sir. If the vapor is relevant, and one must presume it is then it is relevant only in its mixed form of separately harmless compounds. The snifter captured only a minute amount, measured in molecules, so little as to be useless. Sir, you are not contemplating. And yet, we've identified its constituents and their proportions. You are, sir, aren't you? We have almost none of the vapor, but all of its formula. You're actually contemplating it. We can replicate the mixture in a larger amount. You are, in fact, utterly hell-bent on it. We can create a usable dose of whatever the gas may be. Hell-bent on a willfully dangerous course of madness. This is serious, Alfred. As serious as a heart attack. Men have been murdered, as if they were items crossed off a list. And the list may be longer. The vapor must be tested. On a guinea pig. On a human, Alfred. On a man as large as a football player. A human guinea pig who may well seize up in cardiac arrest before my disapproving eyes. 
In which case, I suggest you keep your eyes attentive with a spike of adrenaline at hand. I don't get paid enough for this shit. I quit. (laughs) Oh, no, that's not in there. Sorry. (laughs) Now, I did purposely talk over you a couple times just because I felt that it would be – that would be Bruce's character. (laughs) That was fun. But I I think that sums up what's happening here. (sighs) Yes, that was a great – as a great conversation, a great choice for the Rest in Peace Theater. (laughs) The Rest in Peace Encore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure if I'll do the full rest in peace bit there or just, like, put it in as a dramatic reading. But either way, it was just too good not to do one or the other with. Yes. Poor Alfred. And that is so much easier than saying phase chromatography and electrophoresis. (laughs) Very much easier. (laughs) And hopefully I didn't offend any uh, British listeners. I mean, they've heard my bad British accent before. So if they're still with me, I don't think I can scare them off at this point. Yes, I mean, just in general, I love that the two things that are happening here is, one, Bruce has a plan. Mm-hmm. Two, Alfred, not so happy about it. Very much not happy. So, let's go on to this plan. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene 11. I held the sealed flask high, slowly turning it against the light to study the greenish gas seething inside. It was still unnamed, unidentified even in the mainframe's huge databank. Its effects precisely unknown, but presumably deadly, at least in sufficient quantity. Acting as my own guinea pig, I had no intention of taking a significant dose. I wanted only the slightest taste of this substance, the briefest and mildest experience possible, just enough to confirm its suspected effect. Still, what I was about to do was indeed willfully and extremely dangerous. Were other lives not in danger, it would even qualify as madness. Alfred was right. And yet, he knew. So was I. If this had to be done, and done quickly, someone had to do it now. So Bruce has recreated the vapor, and now holds a sealed flask with greenish gas seething inside. Even with the mainframe's huge databank, he is unable to identify the gas, so he speculates it is Crane's original creation, its effects unknown, but presumably deadly. He has no intention of taking more than the slightest dose, the briefest and mildest experience possible to confirm its suspected effect. Still, he knows what he is about to do is extremely dangerous, bordering on madness. Alfred stands nearby in a hazmat suit. Next to him is a syringe of adrenaline to be used in case of cardiac arrest. So I'm going to read uh, the bit where he unstoppers the flask here. I'm just imagining where Alfred in a hazmat suit. You think he wears his little bow tie on the outside of the hazmat suit? <laughs> Ooh, that's a good outside or inside. Yeah, that's a tough call. Yeah, that's a tough call. Huh? Or maybe the hazmat suit itself is modeled after a tuxedo. I don't know. <laughs> like a liver- liveried hazmat suit. It needs to be a thing. You know. There is enough money in the Wayne family fortune to have a custom-made mm-hmm. Savile Row, London, tailored hazmat suit. Yeah. Several, at least. Hung up on different <laughs> in the backs of different chairs. No, no. <laughs> Respect the clothing. <laughs> All right. I carefully unstoppered the flask, just enough to release a single tendril of its gas, twisting upward like the faint ghost of a green snake. My head flinched back instinctively, 
I forced myself to lean forward for the barest whiff, and again my head jerked back. Since the gas was apparently odorless, I was not sure I'd inhaled any of it. Then my mind reeled, and I knew the unknown substance was stunningly potent. I remembered the slightly strange feeling I'd had as I'd left the most recent crime scene. This was the same sensation multiplied tenfold, enough to make my vision instantly blur. Alfred calls to him in alarm, his voice distorted as if coming from some distant, dreamy place deep under the thick ocean. A rookie mistake here. It turns out that Bruce's plan to just take a little bit of the stuff in and then put it down. Mm -hmm. Once he got the first whiff, he forgot to put it down part. Yeah, yeah. And he's still holding it open under his face. You think there'd be a way to withdraw like a more Mm -hmm. measured amount. Controlled amount. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Alfred says, like, you're holding it open, inhaling too much. So Bruce carefully reseals the flask. You, you big dummy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he thought that, but. Yes, but he, he managed. I mean, he's a professional. He holds it back. Bruce reseals the flask and sets it down, and his fingers are already trembling, and his palms already slick. Bad, Alfred. Very bad. And uh, he tries to look at his butler, but he sees only darkness. This is this is scary stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ha- get a pretty detailed, basically dealing with hallucinations and panic. Mm-hmm. It's getting dizzy. The heart is pounding. The lights, like mm-hmm. the shadows are too mm-hmm. deep. The lights are too bright. When he turns to Bruce, or when he, t- he turns to Alfred and sees only darkness, Alfred's voice comes to him. I'm ready, sir. I'm watching. I'm here. Again, thinking, you big dummy, as he's saying that. Uh, despite that, Bruce is suddenly alone, trapped inside a body that is all all wrong. An alien cage trapping him inside a too tight space, stuffed with everything bad. He wants to run out of his skin and leave his body behind. Then he could come back with a weapon to beat it and crush it. The, with the most awful certainty Bruce has ever known, he knows the worst is about to happen. So it just kind of continues where he's just, he's hallucinating about the bats, that they don't want him there. How dare he take on their guys? How dare he think he could become one of them? And he sees the stalactites dangling down, mm-hmm. which I'm, I'm, that was a weird, there, there with the Batmobile again. It was interesting that he, he remembered the word stalactites, even though his brain is doing all this, he still got stalactites versus stalagmites. Correct. Mm-hmm. He's imagining one will be ready to, to snap free and spear cold stone all the way down through his body. He's looking around trying to find the spike that will fall, but the bats won't let him. They jitter and flutter, swoop and morph, coming out of the darkness straight for his eyes. He raises his arms to beat them back or shield his face, but then there is only a single monster, feeling his entire vision gigantic and hideous. It looms closer and closer. Bruce staggers back and falls, and the bat was upon him, sharp talons digging into his shoulders, fangs trying to bite his face off and chew into his skull. So, yeah, he got a little more than he was expecting. Uh-huh. He's having a bad trip. Mm-hmm. The hideous creature transforms into Alfred. He's saying that it's just him, that Bruce passed out. He's safe now. Bruce's pupils are extremely dilated, and his pulse is still racing, but the effects of the gas are wearing off. 
Have you ever had a, like been in a cave or a cavern? Yes. We had some underground caverns where I lived. I remember taking a sort of you know, touristy type type of thing. So mm-hmm. I remember, I remember uh, Luray Caverns in Virginia was one that we went to back when I was just a wee lad. It was kind of weird. Did you see any baby stalactites? I do not remember. One of the times I went to England to visit Ian, we took a day trip to Wales and visited a, I can't remember what type of electric facility it was called, but it's basically in a mountain. Hydro, I'll have to look it up, <laughs> but it, it's, mm-hmm. it deals with water um, so that during the night when electric rates are lower, it pumps all this water from a lake to the top of the mountain. And during the day, then the water can flow down and get the turbines going. So it's just like this, uh, pulling the water up during the night, letting it fall down during the day to get the, tur- the, the, the engines going. And so we took this tour to this facility, and we literally took a bus deep inside this mountain. Thankfully, cool. it wasn't too claustrophobic because it was just so mm-hmm. big. Yeah. And like the tour guide had the, the Welsh accent. It was just, it was just so lovely. But anyway, they took us around to different parts of the cave and they showed us, like they had us look up. There was a, a part of the wall that wasn't too far away. And there were little tiny things dangling down that looked like snot, <laughs> just kind of like hanging from the ceiling. And he said that those were actually baby stalactites that were just starting to form All from right. the minerals. Sure. Wow. So. Those big, mighty spikes, they start out as just a little bit of snot. So, <laughs> And the bats. The bats! <laughs> oh, but yeah, that, that was a good little bit. I, I bet it's difficult to write a scene like that as someone who has panic attacks but doesn't have hallucinations. Even like writing a panic, panic attack would be hard to... Sure. I, I think mm-hmm. he does a pretty good job of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Alfred's going to ha- get to say, I told you so, for like the next week and a half. There, so. there is that. Yeah. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene 12. Drenched in cold sweat, I let Alfred check my pulse every few minutes for a half hour while I regulated my breathing. He'd set up a large fan to blow the air directly past us, then removed his hazmat mask. Now he brought a glass of water, waited while I drank and again pressed two fingers to the side of my neck. Still decreasing, he said, nearly back within normal range. I know. My mind's almost clear now. But it was... terrifying. He gave me a look. Indeed. Now that I was out of the woods, he let his voice match his expression. One hopes someone is proud of himself. Not proud, I said. Satisfied. We now know what that previously unknown vapor is capable of. Alfred turned sardonic. And we know it, he said, most intimately. So for the next half hour, Alfred closely monitors Bruce's vitals. He sets up a large fan to clear the air. He brings Bruce a glass of water. Bruce says that his mind is almost clear, but it was terrifying. That man, a few words. Alfred gives him a look, and we can imagine what look that was. And he says, Indeed, one hopes someone is proud of himself. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I love Alfred. 
Oh, goodness. Now that the danger has passed, he, he's free to let the, the snark <laughs> come back. But Bruce says he's not proud, but he is satisfied. They know what the vapor is capable of. So it is a an extremely potent but undocumented equivalent of a hallucinogen and hyperamphetamine with severe physiological side effects. And Bruce's own hand is still trembling a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the side effects include arrhythmia, not brought on by actual amphetamine, but instead a combination of an adenosine inhibitor and adrenaline activator. So these are two substances that are that naturally occur in the body and would therefore not be checked in a standard toxicology test. And while it was potent and unpleasant, it did not kill him. So it might be fatal to someone who already has a bad heart, maybe one or more of the regions, mm-hmm. but not all of the younger football players. Right. So there's something else going on. We're getting an answer, but not the whole answer. Right. The puzzle is coming together, but it's still not quite matching the picture on the box. Mm-hmm. Bruce says it is time to alert Gordon. The gas mm-hmm. might not be lethal in and of itself, but it is at least part of Crane's murder weapon. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene 13. The rest of the day passed quickly through distorted time. Now that the fear gas formula was known, I tested several of the dead flies collected at different death scenes. The results were positive for the previously unknown gas. Less than fatal to a human in normal health, but apparently toxic to flies. If so, it explained why the flies seemed too small. It may have died prematurely rather than naturally. In any case, evidence of the gas in the flies further confirmed the presence of the gas at the scenes. But the gas, I remained convinced, could not explain the whole story. I had left the flask unstoppered for long moments, inhaled far too much of its odorless contents, probably more than any of the victims, and it was still not sufficient to kill me. The gas was certainly a component of Jonathan Crane's M.O., even a partial murder weapon, but it had not killed the victims, not in itself and on its own. So what had? What was missing? So now that the formula is known, Bruce tests the dead flies that he had collected at various crime scenes, and each are positive for the gas. Less than fatal to humans in normal health, but toxic to flies. And at first I was like, why are there so many flies? Oh yeah, there were dead bodies laying there for a couple days. And that's why there were flies buzzing around there. Good job, Lane. Put it together. You could be Sherlock Holmes yourself. (laughs) 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 Kind of on that note, though, I I love that Mintz doesn't come and hold my hand and explain to me why there are flies around. You know, there could Mm -hmm. be flies Mm -hmm. around a regular apartment as well. But just you know, letting the reader figure out some things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this would also explain why the flies appeared small. They died prematurely rather than of old age. The Bruce remains convinced that the gas alone doesn't kill the victims. He himself had inhaled far too much, probably more than the victims, and it still did not kill him. Uh, the gas is certainly part of Crane's M.O., perhaps even a partial murder weapon, but what killed them? There was no evidence of force entry at the scenes, no evidence of violence, heart failure set up by the gas, but brought on by something more. 
Bruce ponders on the fact that the most terrifying moments of his own experience happened when Alfred rushed to his aid. He appeared to Bruce as a horrific monster, but what if he was not his friend? What if someone else had rushed at him like that? Someone actively menacing? Is that the missing element? Hmm. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene 14. Gordon's forensic team rushed to Gotham University, securing the small chem lab reserved for Crane's use. Knowing what to look for, they quickly identified trace amounts of the same constituent compounds making up the fear gas. Combined with the other evidence, it was enough to justify an immediate arrest warrant. Crane himself, however, was not in his university office, nor did he show up for the day's lecture. And his apartment is also deserted. And the reason uh, he probably noticed the forensic fans on campus, he noticed something was going on, it spooked him, and he's in the wind. Meanwhile, three more former football players have been located and interviewed. Two say that they do not know a Jonathan Crane, but Harvey Bullock suspects them of lying. The third admits that he knew Crane as the number one geek in high school, and that he and his peers bullied him mercilessly. Batman suspects a possible motive. Motive means opportunity. Mm-hmm. Another motive is revealed when the surviving regents are interviewed. They say that Professor Crane has been put on notice for unorthodox and unprofessional conduct, including the impromptu use of unwitting students in so-called fear experiments. One such experiment involved him pulling a gun on his class of students. He aimed the gun at each student in turn, telling the others to keenly observe the reactions of stark fear. The gun was fake, but nevertheless terrified the class. Yeah, I think that would not go over well. Yeah, you know, we have uh, we have plays on our campus in our theater, and sometimes they use like a prop gun. Mm-hmm. And when that happens... We get, you know, campus-wide email beforehand yeah, letting us know, you know, a prop gun will be, you know, on stage between this time and this time. So if you see it, you know, that's what it is. Don't, yeah. don't panic. So yeah. this, is, uh, this is a little extreme. Yeah. And now I just want, want to clarify, you know, when we did, we talked about this last episode, you decided that this was going to be the next book mm-hmm. and without reading it. Without realizing, you claim, that the first story mm-hmm. is about a university professor who goes crazy and <laughs> kills administrators? Uh, I, then you ask me on? Is, I, this, is, is this your story, I, Lane? I, I thought hmm? I know the perfect person to pair up with this story. <laughs> <laughs> See, Barbara Gordon is a librarian. But, huh. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I get to be the cool one. I just want to make it clear that even though I may understand Professor Crane's issues with administrators, I in no way agree with the manner in which he chose to deal with those issues. I just want that on the record. (laughs) But you do (laughs) empathize with him. I mean, I kind of get where he's coming from. (laughs) Crane tried to laugh off his little experiments, but he was called before the Board of Regents. And he said his action was an innovative demonstration of the subject under discussion. 
Despite his excuse, Crane was severely reprimanded and told his tenure was under threat of being canceled. Okay, well, now we're talking motive. Yeah. That is for sure. Yeah. Crane said he felt the unequivocal contrition. Let me get a lozenge. My throat is getting a little little scratchy here. Yeah. Hopefully it won't click against my teeth too much. But uh. And then Batman solves the crime, the end. <laughs> I mean, if you, need, if you need to wrap it up. You know, <laughs> I'm losing my voice. Batman wins. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hold on. We're almost there. We're almost there. Once spring starts hitting and the allergens start hitting. Ugh, yeah. yeah. Even though it's not bad yet, it'll get there. Okay, we're good. So Crane said that he felt unequivocal contrition, but the regents felt it was not sincere, and that he actually seemed to simmer with barely suppressed rage. Even when three of their members died, the surviving regents were only mildly suspicious. After all, these things happened in threes. Had the victims been younger, they perhaps would have made the, the connection. One regent claimed he did think of Crane, but it immediately dismissed the notion as wildly paranoid and kept the thought to himself. With all this, Batman still lacks proof, but he has little doubt of Crane's guilt. Gordon's forensics technicians examine Crane's apartment, and Batman sees no reason to interrupt them, especially in daylight. If there is evidence there, they will find it. And I love that Batman, the faith that Batman has in the GCPD forensics team. Mm-hmm. It's quite a nice change from the Batman and Batman Returns novelizations, where GCPD aren't much more than a bunch of bumbling idiots. Right. <laughs> Especially in Batman Returns. In in this version of the GCPD, you know, he's not saying he necessarily has full faith and confidence in every cop walking the beat. Mm -hmm. But he has faith in Gordon, and he has faith in these specialists. So yeah. I like that, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But with Crane being on the run, evidence means nothing if the perpetrator can't be found and brought to trial. The surviving players and regents are placed under police protection. But Batman worries about similar grudges. You know, Crane might bear grudges against another group not identified, so he needs to be caught. Batman spends the next day in the cave going over the forensics. He's still a little shaky from his dose of vapor, but hour by hour, he's feeling better. Are you saying that Batman has the vapors? He's got the vapors. <laughs> Get him to his fainting couch. <laughs> Batman's got a case of the vapors. I love it. I love it. So they go over the forensics, looking now for evidence of where Crane might be. And I kind of like this, that they, they can go over the same evidence that they have, just looking at it with a different lens. First, mm -hmm, they're trying to right. figure out what it was, what was the murder weapon, who might have done it. Now it's like, okay, where can the murderer be? And obviously, the technology is much different uh, in, in this case. But determining the source of traces of soils, mm -hmm. that is a total Sherlock Holmes move. Nice. He had cataloged all of the all of the soils across London. Wow. That was one of his one of his databases that and he could identify the uh, type of tobacco and uh, the location of of who sold it, what shop sold it based nice. on the ash, based on the ash. So mm -hmm. I didn't know that's pretty impressive. So when they started talking about soil, I said, okay, I I know, I know that reference. Yeah. That's that's great, especially with Sherlock Holmes being in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's just that's amazing. 
so yeah, like they they find the the plant stems that they had found before, and like you said, they they found trace amounts of soil. Mm-hmm. They identified the plant stem as just straw, and the soil sample is matched in the mainframe to a particular composite at several nearby locations. One location is a farm across the bridge, 10 miles south, on the outskirts of Greater Gotham. It is also near the early childhood home of Jonathan Crane. Da-da-da! And I put in my notes, I am geeking out so hard right now. (laughs) Yes. Like, I was geeking out, you were geeking out, this is just so great. Absolutely. So by the time night falls... Bruce is fully recovered from the green gas, except for a mildly lingering headache. Alfred tells him to be careful, and Batman speeds out of the tunnel in the Batmobile. But but I'm sure he speeds out very carefully. Um, no. But that's what Alfred said. <laughs> oh, poor Alfred. I have on page 55, and the first little paragraph on 56, I marked that down for me to read. Just because it's, uh, I like the imagery that's used. Would you um, like me to? I was going to say, With like, your I, voice? Can, I can either read it later and record it, no, or I it, What's I would, what does the paragraph start with? It starts with Crane's childhood childhood ah, okay. home, and then it ends like the last sentences. I parted the stalks and moved in the direction. Okay, that whole page, or yeah. skip to that. That whole page, yeah. Crane's childhood home had been raised and replaced by a convenience store. With hope dashed at a dead end, I almost turned back for the city. Then I saw nothing but darkness stretching beyond the all-night store's parking lot, a large tract of fallow farmland not yet developed. Dead corn stalks, years old, rustled and rattled through the moonlit field. Once rising straight and green in orderly rows, the dark stalks now etched a chaos of crisscrossing slants, bent or broken by wind and snow, crushed by scavengers, decayed and sagging under the weight of their own death. Oh, I like so that. great. Yeah. I, like I remember the crow in Crane's university office, stuffed and mounted in theatrically posed terror. A cornfield, straw, and a scared crow. Cutting the headlights, which Alfred would in no way approve of. (laughs) I cruised slowly along the field's edge, grateful for the large harvest moon as I scanned through gaps in the roadside trees. As if Gotham ever has anything aside from the full moon. A half mile from the convenience store, the dark shape of a small structure was barely visible among the dead cornstalks, maybe 50 yards back from the road. I killed the engine. That man doesn't kill. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I put the engine out of its misery. (laughs) I brought it to justice. I I held the engine up by its its ankles to get it to talk. (laughs) I killed the engine and rolled off the verge down into the field just far enough to hide the car in the corn. With all systems locked down, I emerged from the car to stand amidst the dense, dry stalks, listening and even sniffing. Hoarse caws from the distance again reminded me of the dead crow in Crane's office. I thought I smelled a faint whiff of kerosene 
but it passed immediately, either taken by the shifting breeze or nothing but wishful imagination. When the breeze stiffened, there was nothing but a long rush of dead leaves. I parted the stalks and moved in the direction of the structure seen from the road. Nice. See, wasn't that a great little scene? That was good. I just, uh, Doug Minch is just painting a picture with his prose, and it is beautiful. Because he's, he's in no way going too purple with it. Mm-mm. It's just Mm-mm. like, it's just, he's using the right amount of adjectives and adverbs and just laying it out, but laying it out beautifully. It's on the line of exaggerated drama. But not quite melodrama. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene 15. It was an old shack, once used to store farm implements, but now weather-beaten and long abandoned, at least until recently. Its windows were tar-papered on the inside, but a fine slit of light glowed through a single peeling seam. It appeared too yellow for reflected moonlight, but I wondered if a film of grime on the black-backed pane could distort color moving closer to eliminate any such trick of the eye, brushing a minimum of cornstalks. I broke their fringe into the overgrown clearing in which the shack sagged. From a more acute angle, the crack of light showed brighter, and even more yellow, undeniable and unmistakable. And then there was more. Soft sounds, scuffings and clinkings, came from within. My heart quickened, but not from fear as I circled the shack to find its door. Kicking hard, I went through the splintering door fast and found him inside. So the small building turns out to be a shack once used for storage, but is now weather-beaten and, until recently, long abandoned. The windows are tar-papered on the inside, but a slit of light is visible. He can hear scuffing and clinkings inside. He finds the door and kicks it open. Crane is inside, dressed in ragged, straw-stuffed tatters like a living scarecrow. They stare at each other, both in momentary shock, both standing utterly still. What a great moment. I don't think we get a lot of uh, WTF moments from Batman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's then, at this point, we get probably, I would guess, the thesis statement for the whole story. The professor of psychology was clearly insane. Says the man dressed as a giant bat. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Pot. Here's Mr. Kettle. Mm-hmm. At this point, for all we know, the existence of Batman isn't widely known in Gotham yet or widely believed. Right. So Crane might be having a WTF moment of his own. So is he startled because he got caught, or is he startled because there's a giant bat standing there? I mean, either one. At the beginning of these chapters, on some of them for the case files, it does give a month and a year, and it notes that this one is three months into him being Batman. Yeah. So it is very early. May may be the earliest one. I don't know that they're necessarily in chronological order, but uh, they may be. But this is certainly certainly early in his career. And like you said, the word of him may not have gotten out yet. Yeah. Or like in the the first Batman 89 movie, the word mm-hmm. is out there, but people think it's rumor. Yeah, that sort of urban legend, Batman. Yeah. So Beyond Crane is a makeshift chemistry lab. 
and it's the final confirmation like batman knows that he's the he's the guy he's the killer and the disguise that he's wearing is what crane uses to push his victim's terror into a fatal episode for some reason it talks about uh, a new shelf that is placed too near the floor and it's holding a bunch of do- a dozen stuffed animals and in the center is a teddy bear flanked by life scale human skulls with one button eye missing but scarecrow rolls away grabs something from the shelf behind him spins back and throws something at batman and it's a miniature novelty skull batman raises his arm to ward it off but it's not plastic like the ones in his office but thin glass it shatters easily releasing a small green cloud Crane is obviously assuming that Batman's going to be rapidly overwhelmed because he shrieks like a banshee and he rushes forward. His arms are waving. Just like, exactly. (laughs) And Batman just kind of, he just stands there with a smile and inhales deeply and freely. (laughs) This confuses Crane. Crane says, you don't scare me. You can't scare me. No bully can, not anymore. And he says he's worked on uh, his body two hours a day on kicks alone. No one will ever beat him up again. He leaps forward with a fighting style best described as awkwardly graceful. Mine would be awkwardly awkward. (laughs) (laughs) A frenzy of long arms and legs lashing like flails. He keeps it up for a full minute, shrieking and howling, kicking and slashing before the reality sinks in. Clearly Crane does not understand how Batman can resist and why every blow is blocked, and that he entered the shack with Chekhov's nose rebreather. (laughs) It comes back. Exactly. Like it should. That's Mm -hmm. perfect. Yeah. And and there's a great line on this page, too, that explains a lot about about Batman. You know, Scarecrow says, "You're, You're not afraid? Not at all? And then it says... I dropped my own voice, a full register. <laughs> What's to fear, Crane? A straw man like you. So he does put on the voice. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, it's canon now. He mm-hmm. does put on a fake, deep, scary Batman voice. <laughs> and he sounds like a stooge the rest of the time. Alfred. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Alfred! Alfred! <laughs> yeah, if Crane replies to this, you think you're so smart, don't you? You think you know who I am. And I kind of, um, usually I criticize Batman for being quick with the punchy punchy and whatnot, but he's, I think he recognizes that Crane is physically frail. He recognizes that he was bullied as a child. He recognizes that there is some, probably some mental health issues. And he's being pretty reserved in how he is treating him. And I can, I really Mm -hmm. appreciate that side of Batman. That's a good point. Because mm-hmm. the Batman I like is the one sure. who believes in people being re- rehabilitated. He must. He must. Yeah. Because they, he keeps sending them back to the revolving door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. despite all evidence to the contrary, he must believe. Yeah. And which is interesting because Batman doesn't really come off as the eternal optimist, but mm-hmm. in some ways he is. Yeah. He knows that the professor is desperate, so he's prepared for, like, you know, final lashing out. Crane kicks out, almost without warning, and does a, a roundhouse punch. Uh, and instead of the really, you know, fighting back, 
Batman just kind of evades the blows. So again, kind of handling him fairly gently. But when he missed the the blow, Batman removes Crane's hat and the sackcloth hood that has the built-in rebreather inside. And Batman says, there's still gas in the shack, Crane. You can't hold your breath forever. Um, It's a bluff because the broken door has probably allowed the gas to dissipate. Crane is not very happy. Still going on with like, you can't do this to me. Yeah, and he's he's talking about bullies and... Yeah, it was just really sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a very human, mm-hmm. identifiable situation to the extreme, of course. Yeah. And um, most of what Crane is saying is, it can't be understood. It just boils down to him saying, like, you're just a bully. I wish you were dead. Like, the other ones are dead. This isn't fair. I'm going to kill every other bully, too. So, not wanting to escalate the situation, Batman just stands in the doorway. And keeps his distance and waits out Crane's tantrum. And sadly, you know, Crane goes on and on about his childhood, even revealing that his own mother was a source of terror for him. Mm-hmm. Which is really just, mm, just it's so sad. sad. It's sad. And Crane finally lapses into a sort of catatonic state. And that's when Batman binds him in plastic cuffs and takes him to the Batmobile. And um, yeah, they leave that area. Neither of us frightened a single crow, it says. I do like that this story does come first because it, it it sort of sets one template, you know, Scarecrow in some ways analogous to Batman. And it, and it comes out here, Scarecrow saying he wants to be the master of fear. Mm-hmm. And eventually that is that is what what Batman becomes, at least to that cowardly and superstitious lot of, right. of, of villains. He he becomes the object of their fear, the master of fear. Mm-hmm. It's a good parallel. And they both had uh, unhappy childhoods. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, but whereas Bruce was at least raised in a loving household and was raised by Alfred later, Crane, he probably came home from being bullied at school to being bullied by his mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every contact leaves a trace. Scene 16. It all came out over the course of the next three months as Crane underwent questioning by a series of defense and prosecution psychiatrists. Terrorized and terrified through his childhood, young Jonathan Crane became obsessed with vengeance, and he fixated on righteous vengeance, determined to fight fire with fire, doing unto others what they had done to him. The study of fear became his life's work with the ultimate goal of mastering that fear through a combination of chemistry and psychology, then exploiting it to his own murderous ends. He succeeded seven times before murder was even suspected, and eight times before I could stop him. Crane says that the victims who lived alone were the easy ones. The others, he would stake out their homes, sometimes every night for weeks, waiting for a chance to get the victim alone. So we have motive, means, and now mm-hmm. opportunity. They do know him somewhat. You know, that mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's uh, recent enough from high school that, that they, they recognize him, and obviously the folks on the board at the university recognize him, yeah. meaning that they invite him in when he yeah. shows up at the door. Yeah, and they're, so, they're probably so, surprised to see him, but, it's yeah, still, but they still open hey, the doors. Crane, sure. Yeah. Come on in. Like if you showed up on my door, I'd be like, oh, hey, Professor Allen, I'm not sure why you're here, but come on come in. On Something's in. obviously wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And that's, you know, of course, why there was no no forced entry. And once inside, Crane would release his fear gas, hold his breath long enough to put on his hood with the rebreather, and uh, scare his victims to death. He would often often brandish a small hand scythe. I was like, oh, a hand scythe? I, I didn't know that was a thing. Is that a sickle? But I learned the difference between a, sci- a hand scythe and a sickle. A sickle has a very round blade, almost mm. like almost like a full circle. Right. right. And a, a small hand scythe has like, like the angular, and it is indeed like a little oh, hand okay. scythe. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. But I learned something. Are you like a librarian or something? No. Um, no. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I solved the mystery. <laughs> You're one of those people who likes to look stuff up and I learn like to stuff. Look stuff up. I like to learn things. I like to learn Weird. things. I think I, I mentioned to you that when I was going to grad school, one of my classrooms had the that poster of Barbara Gordon, and it was actually, you know, this was years ago, and I mm-hmm. knew a little bit about Batgirl from the '66 series reruns, but I really didn't know anything else. And so I didn't know that was my first time realizing that she was a, a librarian, or at least worked in a library. Well, I hope you told Stella that story. I haven't yet. When you recorded with her. Okay. Next time. Save that for next time. I would like to record with her one of these days. And actually, one of the books I just got is the novelization of The Killing Joke. Mm. By the way, she hates that story. So probably not going to happen. But I won't ask her about that one. (laughs) Just, just, Just between friends. And and so, like, no one will ever hear about that on the on the air here. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I have learned a lot about Barbara Gordon through Stella's podcast. So mm-hmm. anyway, anyway, um, in the end, Crane was found unfit to stand trial, and so um, actually, I'll I'll read the last paragraph. Finally, just yesterday. Professor Jonathan Crane was judged incompetent to stand trial on charges of multiple murder. Speaking as the scarecrow and threatening to kill every bully in the courtroom, he was committed to maximum security incarceration within Arkham's Asylum for the Criminally Insane. Case closed. That's uh, a couple things about that one. It's, it's so cute how naive Batman is thinking <laughs> case closed. That means see in a week and a half. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. But here's the thing. And we've joked about Professor Crane this and Professor Crane that. The fact that he is incompetent to stand trial. Very interesting given the fact that a few years ago, a university faculty committee – Judged him appropriate for being awarded tenure. Those are the people who should should be on trial. Uh, I'm just saying. I'm yeah, just I've saying. heard the process of getting tenure is pretty pretty brutal. I, I, I guess not at Gotham U. Huh. I tell you, those guys pushovers, pushovers. <laughs> Do you think they have any openings in the business department? Anyway, but that's not important. I mean, they have an opening in the psychology department. At least <laughs> we know that. We mm-hmm. know that. <laughs> Excellent first chapter. Yeah, I, I, I thought again, just sort of flipping through the book, that was much more of a prose, you know, traditional short story than I necessarily expected. And I'm, I do think we get a variety of stuff mm-hmm. as the, as the book goes by, but certainly a, a really interesting, really fascinating way of of opening the book with this really dramatic, sort of classic Batman story. Yeah. That weaves in all of this forensic stuff into it as well. 
Mm-hmm. It's almost like we're learning stuff while we're going on the adventure. Exactly. Yeah, I was just looking to see how long so the couple of the next sections are. Don't too bad. We'll kind of pin down. Probably, yes, yes. Yeah, we can probably you know, skim through them. Yeah. And see, just sort of make sure there's a nice variety or where we want to stop, do two or three or whatever it is. But we can work that out. Yeah. We'll, we'll do a, a, a few of them at least. Doesn't need to be mm-hmm. as long as this one was. But, uh, yeah. 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 Whew. My voice almost gave out on me there at the end. I, <laughs> I was actually having a little bit of an anxiety attack when I was starting to cough. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not going to make it. And then, the, the, oh. yeah, fun time. Okay, good. The, 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 the fear vapor got to me, but it's good now. <laughs> I was going to say, I figure that's that's what your cats may have gotten into. <laughs> Scarecrow can't keep me down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So any parting thoughts on, uh, on this chapter? No, I thought it was very enjoyable. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to more. Yeah, same here. All right, Professor Allen, enjoy the rest of your spring break. and uh, Party! I'll enjoy getting my tooth yanked out tomorrow. <laughs> yep, that is, you know, when you get to be a certain age, uh-huh. no judgment lane, that is the highlight of our spring yeah. break sometimes. I've Actually, true story, <laughs> I, I've actually had a, a crown on that molar since I was a little kid. Mm. Um, I had scarlet fever when I was a baby. And it apparently messed up some of my molars when they were mm, still, like, in, right. in situ. So that's my old-timey ailment that I had. Scarlet <laughs> fever. <laughs> fever and ague. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that one was just it's ready to go anyway. So, anyway, that's enough about my tooth. So for next time, we'll read a few more sections. I we not pegged it down quite yet. Probably at least three probably about three we'll do the next three sections it won't be very long thank you for listening to batman books the dark knight and prose if you'd like to send me a message comments questions you can reach me on twitter at batman books underscore dkp or on gmail at dark knight prose at gmail.com if you enjoyed this podcast consider leaving a rating or review until next time gothamites happy reading Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger.